Please turn with me in your Bible to the first chapter of the book of Ezra. First chapter of the book of Ezra. I'm going to pray for us, and before I pray, I want to do something. I should probably do this more frequently, but just for a couple minutes, I want to overview the whole book, just to remind us of what we've seen in these 10 chapters, and then we'll zero in on chapter 10. So let's pray again together. You can turn to Ezra chapter 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do ask that You would help us uh, on this last Sunday in this book to take away the uh, main idea of this book, but also heed the warning that comes so starkly in the last two chapters of the book of Ezra. God, I pray that You would give us the motivation to identify idolatry in our own lives and to be merciless towards it because idolatry is so destructive in our hearts, in our families, in our relationships, and ultimately eternally. So, God, I pray that we would see our sins, that we would commit to transformation, and I pray ultimately that we would follow through and repent, and that we would carry out um, these deeds of repentance, as John the Baptist said, bearing fruit in keeping with our repentance. So, God, I pray you would use this time to encourage us confront us, and ultimately lead us to Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just, just a quick 30,000-foot flyover of the book of Ezra. It can be hard to hold this book in our minds because it's not a familiar book for most of us growing up. And so just real quick, here's a reminder of what happened in this particular book. Uh, Ezra 1 picks up right at the end of the book that comes before, which is Second Chronicles. And Israel, after centuries of sin and rampant idolatry, worshiping Asherah and all the gods, Baal of the Canaanites and the Assyrians, God finally judges them by sending Babylon to exile them out, and they destroy the temple, the city, and many are killed. Uh, The place is plundered and destroyed, and it looks hopeless for Israel. But God has made a promise through the prophet Jeremiah, I am going to do what you think is impossible. I'm going to bring you back to your home, and I'm going to enable you to rebuild the temple, and I can be with my people once again, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing. And when this seems absolutely impossible, Babylon is defeated by Persia, and that first great king was Cyrus. He was a pagan idol worshiper, but he was more peaceful in his approach to his politics, and so his ideal is to send people back to their homelands to rebuild their temples. And God moved in his heart to do this, and Israel in chapter 1 Uh, is sent back home, whoever wants to go. Chapter 2 of Ezra, you see the list of names, 50,000 people return from Babylon or Persia, and they go back home to begin the rebuilding project. In chapter 3, they rebuild the altar. Do you remember that little tiny beginning, which seems so insignificant? They rebuild that small structure, that altar, that square, that cube, essentially, and they begin to offer animal sacrifice. And this is a great moment. The people begin to rejoice soon after. In the second year, they begin to lay the foundation of the temple, renewing and relaying the foundation. Remember on that day that they renew that foundation stone is laid, what what do they do? They bring out the band and they sing uh, loudly with joy, but some mourn, seeing how in some ways pitiful this looks, yet they're exulting in God's restoring grace. Then chapter 4 comes. The people of the land confront the Israelites, they make them afraid, and chapter 4 zooms ahead and shows you a hundred years of opposition that Israel is going to face in this time period. And yet, 
the people out of fear cease rebuilding. Chapter 5, God sends two prophets. Do you remember their names? Haggai and Zechariah. And they preach that God is with them, that they need to stop waiting. They need to rebuild. They need to get back up and begin rebuilding God's house. They're building nice homes for themselves, but what about the home of God, the, 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 the temple of God? And they begin, people begin to rebuild. But you remember what happens. As soon as the rebuilding happens, the people of the land again show up and oppose them. We've talked about this theme of opposition throughout the book. When we are beginning to obey the Lord, are we going to find hardships in our path of obedience? Yes. And the people find pushback. And they appeal a letter to the king of Persia, who is now Darius. Time has gone by. And Darius not only supports the rebuilding, what does he do? He finances it. Remember, he sends money back and says, no, no, this is the right thing to do. Cyrus decreed it. We're not going to overturn Cyrus's decree. I'm going to actually support it because Cyrus said to send money. So he sends gold and silver with the people. And the people are able to finish and dedicate the temple at the end of chapter 6, which is a great moment of triumph. And then, remember, from chapter 6 to 7, we zoom forward 60 years. Remember? We jump ahead from chapter 6 to chapter 7. 60 years have gone by. We're now in the year 458 BC, and God has raised up Ezra, the scribe, and the priest. And I, I keep rereading this verse because it's so good. Ezra 7, verse 10 is just a tremendous verse. If we haven't gotten it in our minds yet, here it is again. For Ezra had set his heart to do three things to study the law of the Lord, number two, to do it. And number three, to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra is committed to God's word. And he returns, chapter 8. He takes with him a few thousand people on this return. They finally get back and everything seems to be going well. And after about four and a half months, we saw last week in chapter 9, after four and a half months, no doubt Ezra has been teaching God's word as he's committed to do. What begins to happen is people come forward and they confess that there is a major sin that the people who've returned are beginning to give themselves to. It is the sin of intermarriage. And I know this is so basic, and last week I emphasized this, but I don't ever want to be misunderstood. The sin was not inter-ethnic marriage or interracial marriage. The sin was mixing not ethnicities. The sin was what? It was mixing religions. That's the sin that is being condemned here. Uh, obviously, people who converted to uh, the, the beliefs of Israel and were truly converted out of paganism were considered full citizens in God's kingdom. But these were people who were marrying those who were still worshiping the abominations of the lands. He mentions the Canaanites, the Hittites, etc. This was an unacceptable thing to have done. And out of the 55, 60, maybe more now, thousand people who've returned, only a little over a hundred men had committed this sin. And yet Ezra sees this as appalling and a great compromise and a step towards uh, another exile, uh, another moment where God sends the people out of the land. And he does not want to risk that since they just got in trouble for that very same thing. So here is today's text, Ezra chapter 10. I'm not going to read the text ahead of time. I'm going to read it as we go. I'm simply titling the sermon, The People Repent. And I'll give you the three points and we'll work through these. The first point is this, Ezra grieves because of the sin of the people. He grieves because of the sin of the people. Point number two, the people resolve to repent. And point number three, the people follow through with action. So Ezra grieves the sin of the people. Number two, the people resolve to repent. 
And finally, the people follow through with the action. So if you remember, Ezra 9 is one of the great nine prayers in the Bible. I think I mentioned this sometime in the past. But you remember, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9 are three tremendous prayers from around the same time in history, within a century or so, and they're all heart-wrenching prayers about the sins of God's people and the need for God's renewing and restoring and forgiving grace. So if you ever feel discouraged and you want to commune with the Lord, I recommend studying Daniel 9, Ezra 9, and Nehemiah 9 as three great prayers, chapter-long prayers, essentially, of repentance in God's Word. So let's look here as Ezra grieves the sin of the people. He's already done that throughout chapter 9. In fact, if you don't remember, look back at chapter 9, and let me repeat a couple verses here. Look at the first verse of Ezra 9. After these things had been done, so they've been back in the land for four and a half months or so, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their with their abominations from the Canaanites, etc. Look at verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me when I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. That word faithlessness, it appears throughout these chapters. It's used, I think, 26 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, around 26 times in the Hebrew Bible. And one of those times, you may remember, is from Joshua chapter 7. Remember a man named Achan? He had slipped some of the the gold in the cloak from uh, Jericho, and it was supposed to all be destroyed. And he had taken it and buried it in his tent with his family. And it says there had been great faithlessness done that day by Achan uh, at Ai. That's why they lost the battle at Ai. You see how significant faithlessness is? when you're in a covenant relationship with God. Israel in Joshua lost the battle because of that one man's faithlessness. And what happens? The Lord carries out execution. Achan and his family, along with all that belonged to him, was put to death. And the Lord removes the faithlessness. And what happens? Israel's able to win the next battle because the faithlessness has been removed from the camp. Do you see how serious faithlessness is? In an Old Testament context, it's true in all contexts, but here in this context, it is threatening the very survival of the people of God. Do you see this? They lost a battle because of faithlessness. People died because of faithlessness. They were exiled because of faithlessness. I mean, just, I I know that we would all struggle in the same way as they did, but let's put ourselves in their shoes for a minute. You've been back home for a blink of an eye, historically speaking, right? A handful of decades, you've been back in the land, and what are we doing? We're doing the same thing that got our great-grandparents and grandparents exiled. We're doing the exact same kind of sin. We're intermingling with idolatry. We're marrying those who worship idols. We're bringing idolatry into our homes. It's now going to impact our children. The next generation will grow up worshiping all kinds of gods. And what's going to happen to Israel? Judgment will follow. And Ezra is saying, have we learned nothing from what God has just put us through? Let me just say it as an aside here, maybe as a point of application. When the Lord disciplines us for sin, and Jerry just mentioned this uh, in, during Sunday school, when the Lord is faithful to discipline us for sin, let us not go through a time of discipline and the pain of that and then come out and fall right back into the same sin. 
Here, Ezra is saying, let us not be guilty of the same thing that the people were just guilty of. Didn't we learn our lesson? So now let's skip ahead to chapter 10. And listen to what Ezra says when he's done praying. The power of his example is is amazing here. Ezra 10.1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men women and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And then skip to verse 6. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, uh, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles." So here is what Ezra does. I heard James Hamilton, who's a pastor who I, who I appreciate and I've benefited from in this book. Uh, James Hamilton said, do you want to change the world? If you want your life to have a world-shaping impact, you need to be like Ezra. And here's what Ezra did. He loved the Bible and studied it. Number two, he sought to obey the Bible. Number three, he taught the Bible. And in this text, what do we see? He grieved over the sins of the people that he loved, and he prayed with agonizing prayer for God to go to work amongst those people that he loved. So again, he loved and studied the Bible. He obeyed the Bible himself. He taught the Bible faithfully. And here we're seeing he, he was uh, deeply grieved over the sin of the people, and he was deeply moved to pray passionately for the people. And guess what happens? This is so significant. We can miss this. Ezra was given authority. I'm talking political authority from the king of Persia. Tremendous political authority. Just, just real quick, lest we forget about this, look back at chapter 7. I don't want us to forget the, the authority that Ezra had. Look at verse 25. The king of Persia, Darius, excuse me, not Darius, this is Artaxerxes. Getting, uh, that's a wrong king. Artaxerxes wrote this letter and says this, verse 25, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom given you that's in your hand, will appoint magistrates and judges. Look at verse 26. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, Let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Does Ezra have tremendous power right now given to him from the king of Persia? Yes. Could Ezra right now just demand on sheer political authority, this needs to, I'm telling you what needs to happen. X, Y, and Z needs to happen. Could he have done that? Yes. He doesn't do that. Now, in a moment, you will see he does exercise authority, but he doesn't directly exercise authority. He does it indirectly. And what's amazing is the guy who has all the authority in the room is Ezra. He doesn't use it right now. What does he do? Instead, he simply sets a powerful example personally. I think this is amazing. I mean, if you have the authority to get something done, just sheer authority. Isn't it tempting just to go straight to the authority? Like, I can just make you do this. But Ezra instead models what repentance should look like publicly for the people. What does he do? Hairs his clothes, pulls out his own hair and beard. He sits as if he's at a funeral. He sits grieved and appalled. He's weeping. He's uh, praying passionately. And what happens? Like a kind of Holy Spirit magnetism, people start gathering around him. He's not shouting at people. He's not condemning people. He's simply agonizing in prayer before the Lord. And people are broken by this. I mean, you know this is how the Spirit so often works, isn't it? You have a friend, family member, who is deeply being moved by the Spirit. There's a brokenness over sin. 
They have a freshness about God's presence in their life. There's a zeal and a passion against their sin and for lost people in their life or for whatever it may be. And don't, if you get close to that, what happens to you? It starts to warm you, right? Uh, you, get, you get near someone else's fire and the flame begins to warm you. It's like the, the illustration we've used here is coals uh, all together burn bright, but you take one coal away from the others and it gets cold pretty quickly. But you bring that coal back over to where the warmth is and it reignites in a flame. And there is, I don't know if there's much more powerful things in this world than the godly Christian example of you to the people around you. Think about this. Ezra has authority. He doesn't go to his authority. He sits down weeping, agonizing, praying, pleading, fasting. He goes without food and water because of his mourning over the faithlessness of the people. And it says, look back at verse 1, one more time, 10-1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men women and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. I know I I mentioned this recently, but I'm going to mention it again. I love the fact that the children get mentioned in this verse. Here's Ezra. Imagine imagine you're you're eight years old, you're six years old, you're 12 years old. And this leader of God's people, there he is agonizing. It's not a show. This is not performative. It's not something called affectation. He's putting on fake emotions to look spiritual. God does not like that. Okay, that's hypocrisy. He's not faking this. Ezra is truly grieved. He is truly in agony. This is not a show. It's not a performance. He's not doing it for those reasons. This is real. And the people can tell. Can't you tell when you know someone who's putting on a little bit? You're like, I don't know how real this is. You see someone on TV, on Christian television, you're like, I don't, I don't know how much this is real or performance. But you know when it's real. When there's someone you know who is truly grieved over sin. And it says here, not only did men and women gather around Ezra, but children did. I mean, I can't help thinking, you're eight years old, you see Ezra in agony, you come close, you hear his bitter prayers over sin, and what happens? It says that they began to to weep. It includes the children here, the people, they wept bitterly. Some of the children, no doubt, are included in this group who are weeping over sin. Do you think this has an impact on the next generation? Absolutely. Absolutely, it does. So Ezra begins to have an effect, not through sheer political power, but he leads by example. Now, point number two, the people resolve to repent. This is really verses two through six, and let me read those for us. Verse two, and Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been, as had been said and so they took the oath. Just, just look here. A couple things that I did not notice initially reading this. Verse 2, do you see who is speaking here? It's not Ezra. One of the people comes to Ezra and makes the suggestion about what to do. Do you see Ezra is leading by example? Ezra does not say, here's what we're going to do. Instead, he models repentance, and what happens? One of the people comes and suggests what they should do. Do you see that? Shechaniah. Now, here's what's interesting. Shechaniah is called here, verse 2, the son of Jehiel of the sons of Elam. 
You see that? Now, at the end of this chapter, I'm going to read the list of names toward the end of the sermon. That'll be entertaining for everyone, I'm sure. But look at verse 26. These are the list of people who sin. These are the people who intermarry. This is the list of all those who are guilty. Look at verse 26. Of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel. Do you hear the same two names? You have Elam and you have Jehiel, the same two, right? So the man speaking here, Shechaniah, is from a family where intermarriage had happened. Does that make sense? So he is from a family where intermarriage had happened, and he himself is coming forward and saying, we have done wrong, which is pretty amazing. But look again at verse 2. Look at what he said. It's two things. We've broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Look at this. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. That, that is an astonishing statement. See, if he's just dealing with God in terms of God's justice, those statements don't make sense. You hear what he says? We've broken faith. We've married foreign women. We've married idolatrous foreign women. We've brought abomination into the people of God. And if God was just a God of justice, the statement would end there and it would say, therefore, we expect God's judgment. That's not what he says. What does he say? But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So I want to say to you, it does not matter what evil is in your past. I don't care what you've done. You could have a list of sin that would make everyone in this room blush, stuff that you would never say out loud, stuff that maybe no one's ever found out about. You could have a list of evil that is so long you, haven't, you can't even remember all the things that are done. Listen, it doesn't matter what you have done. Even now there is hope in spite of this because of the gospel of Jesus. It does not matter what is in your past. If you will turn from sin and you will trust in Christ's finished work, Christ will save you today. He will save you right now. He will forgive you fully, freely, and forever, and He will never again bring up your sins against you to condemn you because they are thrown away as far as the east is from the west. It is only the God of the Bible who offers this kind of salvation through the substitutionary death and the resurrection of His Son, the Lord Jesus. So the people make a resolution to repent. And man, this takes me back to my early Christian days. I remember uh, Scott gave me for my, when I was graduating high school, he gave me a copy of Matthew Henry's complete commentary on the Bible in one volume. That thing is a, is a doorstopper if you need one, but it's much better than a doorstopper. It's huge. And uh, one volume, the print is about four, size four font, I'm pretty sure. You need, a, you need like a microscope to read the thing. And I still use it to this day. Scott bought it for me in 2005. I still use it. And uh, I remember early in my Christian life, I was reading The Prodigal Son, and who doesn't love that story? And I'm, I'm reading Matthew Henry's commentary in Luke 15. And I, I don't have the exact wording, but, but in the story, in verse 15, the prodigal says this. Remember, the prodigal's in the pigsty of sin, unclean filth everywhere. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs did eat. And then he says, what, what am I doing sitting here? Even the hired men, even the servants of my father have it better this. I will arise and go to my, my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And you hear, I will arise and go. Did he make a commitment to repent? Did he make a commitment, a resolution to go home to his father? Yes. But then Matthew Henry said, resolutions are good things, but follow through is everything. It's one thing to say, I'm going to get my, I'm going to repent. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to submit myself to the Lord Jesus. That's wonderful if that's what you believe. But you need to follow through and actually produce fruit 
that bear, uh, that, that bear accordance with your repentance. So Luke 15 verse 20 says, and he, the prodigal, arose and came to his father. And yet while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. I want to tell you, if you're, if you're thinking in the back of your mind, I, I know that there's sin in my life that I need to get dealt with. I need one day to get rid of it. One day I'm convinced I'm going to get rid of it. One day I'll repent. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't say tomorrow. The devil's favorite day is tomorrow. That's what the devil always says when he tempts. He says, yes, of course you can get right with God. Just not right now. That's Satan talking, by the way. If you ever think, I'm going to get rid of this sin, but not right now, you can be sure that that is demonic. That is of the flesh. That is worldliness. Any delay in repentance is not of God. It doesn't matter how resolute it feels. Tomorrow is not the day of salvation. Tomorrow is the day of damnation. Today is the day of salvation. Right now, the doors of mercy are open. They are open wide. Jesus stands beckoning sinners saying, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you life. I will take the burden away from you. If you are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest right now in this moment. You do not have tomorrow promised to you. You have today, right now, available to you. Avail yourself of it. Why would you refrain? Why would you wait? Why would you say tomorrow? No, the prodigal says, I'm going to arise and go. And then guess what? He arises and he goes. And while he is yet a long way off, the father saw him. He could have felt many things. The father felt compassion. And the father, who in that culture at that time did not do these kinds of things publicly, what did he do? He ran and embraced and kissed his son. And before the son can even finish his prearranged speech, remember, make me like one of your hired servants is not even in the actual version because the father cut him off short and said, quick, bring my best robe. Put it on him. Put my ring on his finger. Uh, put my coat on his back. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a party right now because this son of mine was dead. He's alive. He was lost and he's been found. And the father rejoices greatly. So the people resolve, but they follow through on their resolution. Now, this resol- what, what, what they do, what they resolve to do and what they do, it is a severe thing. I mean, I, I tried to humanize this story. It's one thing to read it. It is another thing to try to humanize it. This is intense stuff. There's even debate about exactly how to interpret some of this. I'll just tell you where I'm at on this. I think that Ezra and the people did the right thing here, but I think it was a severe thing. I do not think it was an easy thing. What they did was they gathered together. You'll, I'll read it in a moment. They gathered together. And they find out a list of all those who are guilty of marrying those who worship idols. And they say, we've got to get the idolatry out of the camp. And so for several months, they gather and they meet with leaders. And one by one, they work through the cases. And this is the part that, if you haven't heard this story before, it may surprise you. They agree together to divorce their wives and to send their wives and children away from the promised land back. We don't know exactly where, but assuming they went back to their homes And these men who had married and had some of them had had children, one commentator said, returned to the gloom of their childless homes after this action where they sent away their wives and their children because of the compromise of idolatry. Now, if you've never heard that before, and even if you have, there's probably a lot of questions that spring to your mind at this particular moment. So let's continue reading here. Uh, Point number three, the people follow through with action And this starts in verse 7, goes all the way to the end of the chapter. I'll read this in some pieces. Uh, Let's look at verse, let's start in verse 6. 
Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. Now here's the political power shows up in verse 8. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. Pause here. This is mid-ish December. This is when it's getting cold. The rainy seasons come in, as you'll see. This is the middle of December, middle of verse 9. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and uh, Jasiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbethi, uh, the Levites, supported them. So out of all the people, only four opposed that, which is a remarkable, remarkable thing. Verse 16, then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. So this took about three months to work through all the cases. Now I'm just going to read to the end of the chapter. Now, verse 18. Now there were found some of, now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Masiel, Eliezer, Jerob, and Gadaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak. That's the Jeshua, by the way, that's been a major character in this book. Some of his descendants have intermarried. Amazing. And his brothers. Verse 19. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Immer, Hanani, and Zebediah. Of the sons of Haram, Messiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jethiel, and Uzziah. Of the sons of Pasher, Elioni, Messiah, Ishmael, Nethanel, Jazabad, and Elisa. Of the Levites, Jazabad, Shimei, Kaliah, that is Kelatai, Pathahiah, Judah, Eliezer. Of the singers, these are leaders and singers and gatekeepers. Eliashib, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telam, and Uri, of the end uh, of Israel. Of the sons of Perash, Ramiah, uh, Aziah, Malkijah, uh, Mijamim, uh, Eliezer, Hashabiah, and Benaiah. Of the sons of Elam, Madaniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. Of the sons of Zatu, Elioni, uh, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and 
Azazah, I think, uh, of the sons of Bebai were Je- Jehonan, uh, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athli. Of the sons of Bani were Meshulam, uh, Maluk, uh, Adiah, Jashub, Sheol, and uh, Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Adna, Helo, Benaiah, Messiah, Mataniah, B- Bezalel, Benui, and Manasseh. Of the sons of Haram, Eleazar, Ish, uh, Ish, I think, Malchijah, Shemaiah, Sh- uh, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah. Of the sons of ha- Hashem, uh, Matani, uh, Mat- Matata, Zab- Zabad, uh, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, this is not, this is not easy, uh, <coughs> Manasseh and Sh- Shimei, of the sons of uh, Bani, uh, Madai, Amram, Uel, uh, Beniah, Bediah, uh, Keluhai, Veniah, Merimoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matani, Jeshu, of the sons of Benui, Shimei, uh, Shilamiah, Nathan, Adiah, Machnadabai, Sheshai, Sherai, Azarel, uh, Shelemiah, Jer- Sheremiah, Shalem, Amariah, and Joseph, of the sons of Nebu, uh, Giel, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zebna, uh, Jadai, Joel, and Beniah. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Whew. Now, the, th- that list is quite a way for the book of Ezra to come to a conclusion, is it not? That is not on an uplifting, positive note. Now, I, I want to bring out some points of application here before we move toward the Lord's table that I think are important. Number one, the situation is extraordinarily dire. Now, I want to draw out some very important points. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to your right. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Very important to cross-reference this text. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In the, now, I don't have an answer to all your questions about the mass divorce, okay? I don't have an answer to all the questions. I have some questions myself about how all this fits together. Here's what I will tell you. In the new covenant, for sure, you are not allowed to divorce your spouse because they're not a believer, okay? Now, I can't fully flesh out the differences here. My, my best guess, I will tell you, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I could not sleep over this. I didn't know what to do with this. I this is a very difficult issue. 110 divorces. That's my sermon text. Wow, what do you say about this? And so here's, what I, here's some things I can say with absolute certainty. In the New Covenant era, you do not divorce an unbelieving spouse unless they've committed adultery or they abandon you. That's it. So, so 1 Corinthians 7 is so clear on this. It's talking about people who are not married to believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Paul's here saying that the Lord Jesus did not talk about this issue during his earthly ministry, I think is what he means there. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should, what? Not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It would not surprise me if some of the Corinthians were using Ezra 9 and 10 to justify divorcing their unbelieving spouses in the, in the church age. And what does Paul say? That's not how that works. That's not, a, that's not an appropriate understanding of the setting. 
So what do we do with the fact that over 100 Israelites divorced their wives? And the answer is, some people think Ezra was wrong. Uh, you can understand why someone might take that position. And there's a number of people who think Ezra was just dead wrong. The people made a sinful decision to deal with sin. Uh, there's a lot of other people, people like Derek Thomas, even Don Carson, some other guys like this who are a little bit in the middle. They say, I think generally what they did was the right thing. I think generally it was the right thing. I'm not sure if all the details of how they carried it out was exactly right. Uh, this is an important question for biblical interpretation. This is too late in the sermon to do this, but here we go. Um, here, here's a point on biblical interpretation. There are texts of Scripture that are prescriptive, that command you to do something. Like 1 Corinthians 7 is prescriptive. Do not marry and I'm, do not divorce an unbelieving spouse. It's prescriptive. There are, there are also stories in the Bible that are descriptive. They are inspired uh, tellings of what happened, but they don't necessarily say it was right or wrong what the actions of the characters were that were done. Are you following that? So some people would say Ezra was basically on the right track, but he might not have done it exactly right. I still think reading the book of Ezra on its own terms, I don't get any sense from how Ezra is written that we are to take this as a compromise of sin on Ezra's part. I don't think this was, I don't think Ezra is sinning in this text. I think that it is being presented to us in Ezra as the right thing to do. How could that be? Well, I, this is where I'm not totally sure, but my, my best guess would be this. We live in a different moment in redemptive history, and here's what was going on in Ezra's day that is unique. It's not something we're going through in our day. In Ezra's time, the people of God, can we admit, were in a very precarious situation. I mean, the whole people of God. Remember, Ezra's sin said the holy seed, the, the offspring, is, in, is under threat right now. Because if we bring in paganism into the people of God, we're going to mix the true line of David, that is the, the messianic line that Jesus is coming from, we're going to mix the promised seed, the, the, the holy seed, with paganism. And what's going to happen? The very promise of a coming Davidic king will be destroyed. And so, I think in an extraordinary circumstance where the very life of the people of God and the very possibility of the Messiah coming through the Holy Seed was at stake, and therefore, drastic, unusual measures were taken to protect the Holy Seed, the Messianic line. And I think that's what happened. I think that a very severe thing had to be done. And here's the example I would give. I think the example was, there was, uh, there was a, a severe infection in the arm of the people of God, and what they had to do was amputate. I think that's what's happening in this text. Idolatry was coming in the door, and idolatry had to be stopped. And so the amputation was this divorce, and the removal of both the, the wives and some of the, even the children is removed from the people in order to maintain the purity of God's people and the, and the line of, of Christ. One other text would be 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, where an unbelieving husband is married to a believing wife, and that wife is called to love her husband, submit to her husband, love him well, in order to win her husband uh, to Christ in the new covenant era. So how do we apply this today? Because we're not living in this time, we're not under Ezra, and we're not being called to do what the people were called to do then, so how do you apply it today? I actually think the application is pretty straightforward. We are called to deal with the idols in our lives, not the people here for us. The idols in our life are meant to be dealt with like Jesus said. Gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin. Cut off your hand, your foot, Jesus says, if it causes you to sin. Deal drastically with the sin in your heart, the sin in your life. And this means prioritizing worshiping Jesus alone over everything else, even family. I mean, this means we don't idolize our family. We don't worship our children. We don't worship our spouses. We don't worship our jobs. Whatever it is that is vying for supremacy with Christ must be uh, in our hearts dethroned and pushed to the side. Um, what that looks like will be different than in Ezra's day, of course. 
And if this ending of Ezra is not depressing enough, can I, can I give you a little bit more of a discouraging note here? Turn with me to the end of Nehemiah, the very next book, Nehemiah 13. And if you're familiar, Ezra and Nehemiah go right together. They tell one unified story. Ezra shows back up in Nehemiah a couple of times. And can I just give you a little, this is a spoiler alert for, for Nehemiah. I'm going to ruin the book of Nehemiah if you haven't read it before. So here you go. In Nehemiah, he comes back just a few years after Ezra. And you know what he rebuilds? The wall. You, you may have known that. He rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem and they rebuild the wall. Nehemiah purifies the people. They reinstitute a proper worship. They have this nine-foot-wide wall uh, that they've built. It's this wonderful wall. And they get the band, and they split the band into two parts. So they have people with trumpets and instruments, and they go around, split the band in two halves, and they go around the wall. Ezra leads one group. Nehemiah leads the other group. I love this scene. They're playing these instruments. They're praising God for His faithfulness. They go all the way around the wall of Jerusalem, praise the Lord, and you think Nehemiah is going to end on this high note. That's Nehemiah 12. You think, oh, great. Verse, uh, verse, uh, verses 38 to 42, you have this high note. It's this wonderful moment of praise, dedication of the wall. And you think that the book should end right here. They lived happily ever after. But there's one more chapter in Nehemiah. And you know what happens? Nehemiah leaves for a few years because he has to go back to Persia for his work. And then he, he comes back uh, home after a number of years. And here's what he finds. This is the end of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. When he gets back to Jerusalem after all those wonderful moments, here's what he finds. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Oh my goodness, intermarriage has happened again. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of, the, uh, of each people. And I confronted them. You ready for this? Nehemiah's approach is a little different than Ezra. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Etc. Look at verse 27. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Stop there. This is the warning of both the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So long as we are living in this age before glorification, our flesh is always active and at work, and we cannot give it the high ground in our lives. Because the second we allow our flesh to do its own thing and we stop fighting it, and we stop assaulting our flesh and putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. The second we stop doing that, what happens? Like weeds, our flesh grows right back. Our, our sinful temptations come right back. And before long, we're giving in to the same sins as before. This is a warning. We need a Savior. We need the Holy Spirit to be in us. We need God's grace and help to fight our sins so that we don't fall back into the same sins time and time again. So I want to end here on a, on a point of hope with communion. Jesus is offering us here His full and free forgiveness, not through the elements, but through the gospel message itself. He died for sinners. He rose from the dead. If we will trust in Him and repent of our sins, we will be saved. And He will fill us with His Holy Spirit. He will empower us to fight our sin day in and day out to refuel by His grace and to continue uh, mortifying our flesh and putting our sin to death. I'm going to turn, as I always do, to, or as I often do, to 1 Corinthians 11. This is what Paul wrote, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are not walking in unrepentant sin, we would invite you to come forward and partake of these elements and return to your seat. Uh, If you are not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, we would ask you to refrain from these elements and instead to deal with the Lord even in your own seat, to talk to Him, to plead with Him for a new heart and a new life that He is willing to give you even now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would see here the severity with which we should treat our own sin. God, help us not to domesticate our sin. Help us not to give our sin a small corner in our lives where it can live and thrive and fester. Help us not to become lazy in fighting our flesh, thinking, oh, we've had this wonderful moment. We've finished the walls. We've, we've sung around the walls. We've proclaimed your victory and your faithfulness, and therefore we can take it easy and, and ignore our flesh and our sin and allow things to just go as they will. No, our sin will return. Intermarriage returned. God, help us to see our sin, to hate it, to commit to defeat it, but then by your grace to actually carry it through, that by your grace, for your glory, we would not just make a resolution, but that we would truly change and that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.